How do we fix the housing crisis? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Brian Kaplan. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Brian Kaplan. Brian is professor of economics at George Mason University. His major fields of interest are public choice, public finance, and monetary economics. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, and he wrote the book, The Myth of the Rational Voter. That was named the best political book of the year by New York Times. He's the author of other books too, such as Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, and Open Borders. Brian blogs for Econlog and has been published in New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Time, Newsweek, Atlantic, and has appeared on ABC, BBC, Fox News, MSNBC, and C-SPAN. He's also published in many notable academic journals too, such as American Economic Review, Public Choice, and the Journal of Law and Economics. Last time, we talked about his book, The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. This time, we'll be talking about housing and the kind of ideas driving his upcoming book, Build, Baby, Build, The Science and Ethics of Housing. Brian, welcome back to The Curious Task. Fantastic to be here on The Curious Task. And it's great to have you back on, Brian. So as you know, we base each episode on a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, how do we fix the housing crisis? And I'd like to start by touching on what the crisis is and how you think we should look at it. So I figure the first place to start is actually something you noted in one of your, uh, in one of your blogs about the, the upcoming book that you're writing on the topic. And you essentially say that, of course, I mean, everyone agrees that soaring housing prices are a problem and that there is some sort of crisis. Most people just say, well, it's, it's a problem of supply and demand, and that's getting the blame for rising housing prices. You say that's correct, though deeply misleading. So why, why is it not painting the full picture in your mind if I just say, ah, you know, Brian, the problem with the housing price situation is supply and demand. What are you going to do? Why is that misleading? Right. Well, when you say that, most people, including most economists, think that you're saying the problem is natural scarcity. So there's just a whole lot of people want to live in nice places, and there's only so much housing we can build in nice places, and that's the reason why prices are going up so much. But when you actually look at what's going on, say that the large majority of what we're seeing has nothing to do with natural scarcity. Rather, it is artificial scarcity because regulation is making it very hard to build new housing, especially in the most desirable places. Uh, There's a lot of research to this effect. So what really what I'm trying to do in my new book, Build Baby Build, is take a lot of academic research that would be super boring to most people and bring it all together and give it a perspective. And when you do that, research that seems intrinsically dull becomes interesting Like who on earth really is excited about parking requirements, for example? It seems like a really boring topic, something only wonks are interested in. But when you say, look, this is one important way in which we are restricting the supply of housing, making housing artificially scarce, one of many different such regulations, then something that started off seeming very boring becomes interesting. And again, my hope is I can make it fascinating. I tell people I'm trying to write the most fascinating possible book on housing regulation, And then many people say, well, that doesn't sound like that high of an ambition, but I really think that once you look at it through this lens of needlessly and artificially strangling the production of this major commodity, you realize, wow, this is actually fascinating stuff. It's gripping. Right. I, I, think, I think so myself. And we're going to get into some specific regulations and, and, and deeper topics as we go. But before we, we jump right into a couple more follow-up questions to that, um, I just want to tag on something that you, you talk about. And you just mentioned it there. You also said in your blog, when we talk about it's ultimately regulation and, and government planning to some degree, strangling housing supply, you say, especially in desirable locations. And I think a lot of people do think about the major city centers and mm-hmm. the disasters of certain places in New York or Vancouver or Toronto. But I, I think it's safe to say that across the board, even in quote unquote, less desirable locations, you mm-hmm. still see government regulations, I'm sure, coming up in your research, mm-hmm. uh, everything from moderate to ridiculous in any location, right? Sure. The main thing I would say there is that at least when you get to the rural U.S., then probably regulation just isn't having that much effect. Mm. So it may be a bit. But when you're in rural areas or also when you're in urban areas that have just lost a lot of population, then again, plausibly regulation isn't changing things that much. 
But once you get to not just the areas that you think of as being really hot, like the Bay Area or Boston or Los Angeles, but when you also just look, start thinking about cities where there's any growth going on, then you realize, ah, what's going on is that places like Chicago, where if you get 30 miles from downtown Chicago, then housing prices get fairly low again. Yet if you look to the downtown, that's where you see, ah, housing prices here are actually quite exorbitant. And again, this is where it's like, well, of course they're going to be exorbitant because everybody wants to live downtown. And then you realize, well, wait, but we've got the technology just to put a lot more housing in these places and we're not using it. And we do know historically that the normal pattern is that when the price of housing gets above the cost of production, you just spark a building boom and people keep building and building and building until you drive cost, uh, cost of housing back down to the cost of production. This is what historically has happened normally. And now it seems like it doesn't happen except in more rural areas or areas that are very lightly, that are very lightly regulated. Right. And, and you say, you, you've said in this blog that I'm referring to, and we'll put it in the episode notes as well so people can go check it out, but um, standard estimates of the effect of regulation on housing is, is massive, of course. And it's very plausible, you say, that U.S. housing would be 50% cheaper under, under laissez-faire yeah. if we were to build baby build, as yeah. you would say. Well, can you, of course, we're not going to list every single thing, but um, beyond like, you know, parking regulations, for example, can you, can you list other kinds of regulations that oh, yeah. the listeners should keep in their head that you've been researching that contribute sure. to this? So height regulation, big one for cities. It's very hard to build skyscrapers these days in most places. Some of the major cities just stopped it for a while. So San Francisco, they built no new skyscrapers between 89 and 2001. So it's oh. a 12-year period where zero get built. Wow. Um, and then they liberalized to allow roughly one to be built per year. <laughs> and then in 2020, there was a new initiative passed, which plausibly is going to bring it back down to zero. Well, like that remains to be seen, but at least that's plausible. Mm. Um, New York City, there was a, a big period of very few being built, and then they relaxed a bit. But again, if you just go and take a look at aerial photographs of these exorbitantly priced cities, what you'll soon realize is they could have a lot more skyscrapers. San Francisco could easily have 10 times as many skyscrapers as it has right now. If you take a look at Central Park in Manhattan, you could ring the entire park with skyscrapers. You know, They recently built one new big skyscraper, and you look at hey, there's room for a hundred. Like, like you just look at it. Like you could totally do it. And given those prices, builders would want to. It's just so hard to get permission. So height restrictions are a big deal, especially in big cities. But in you know, in other areas, when you get further away, then they wouldn't be building skyscrapers probably, but they might want to build a ten-story building that mm. they're not allowed to build. Right. So there's that. Uh, so anyway, so height restrictions are a big one. Uh, multi-family restrictions very hard to get permission to build anything other than single-family homes. Uh, this is especially the United States. Uh, Europe, this isn't as much of a problem. Canada, I'm guessing you're more like us than Europe, but you tell me. I'm not totally clear on that. But it's very normal in, uh, for cities to make 80 or 90% of all the land a single-family home only. Mm. That's all you're allowed to do. Now, closely related to this is minimum lot sizes. It's very common in the U.S. now to say you have to have at least half an acre or even a full acre. Wait, remind me, do Canadians know what acres are? I, oh, I keep yeah, forgetting. We're good on acres. <laughs> okay, you're good on acres. So, yeah. so you're, not, you're not doing hectares. All right, so an acre is a huge amount of land. Almost no one actually wants an acre. But nevertheless, it's very common for regulation to say that you have to have at least an acre of land in order to build a house. It's not even that rare in the U.S. now to have two acres, five acres. My colleague Alex Tabarrok just built a home on a five-acre zoned area. And so like, what's the point of this? The point mm -hmm. of this is to prevent almost anyone from building homes. Then you also have regulations of parking requirements. These are things like saying, if you want to build an apartment complex, you have to have three parking spots for every single unit. Even if people in the unit have zero cars or one car, you have to have three. Right? And so then there are many other kinds of zoning regulations that spill over into residential housing. Things like saying that every commercial development has to have enough parking so that on the busiest day of the year, all of your customers can park for free. Mm. Right. So right. basically that means on the day of American Thanksgiving, the day after American Thanksgiving, that's Black Friday, that's our busiest shopping day of the year. The way that they say what kind, how much parking a business has to have is they say, well, how many people would show up on that day at the very peak time if you didn't charge them a penny to park? Right. And then every you have to build that much parking, which means that on the other 364 days of the year, there is surplus parking, parking that could have easily been used to, to build more residential housing. 
So we have so parking restrictions, height restrictions. Uh, you, you talked about like uh, specific regulations on, on yes. densification, I suppose. Yes, oh, yes. Have, have you run into much about uh, zoning causing the problem? And I should specify here what I'm more interested in when I'm, when I'm asking the question is uh, like, for instance, I had Alain Berteau on the podcast a while ago, and he talks about he's less concerned about, um, you know, zoning, for instance, about like keeping heavy industrial chemical away from residential. And he's more into the types of zoning that would talk about, say, you can't put a pizza place there or you can't have a mall there. Or you can't have houses yes, yes. next to this little music store or something like that. Have you run into a lot of that in your research? So probably that is a factor too. I think if it's more likely to become a factor in the future when a lot of malls go out of business and then it's really hard to turn them into anything else. Probably one of the main problems right now is it's so hard to build what's called mixed use housing. Mm. So something where there is a lot of demand where basically you have commercial buildings on the, on the first floor at the ground level and then residences above. It's extremely convenient for people. It's a good model but often it's just illegal to do it. In the case of things like separating manufacturing from resident residential housing, that's something where it happens quite naturally, even without regulation. You want to put your manufacturing next to docks, next to train stations. Um, basically, the zoning regulation makes it more inflexible so that you can't have exceptions or it's harder to have exceptions. Um, so, you know, I guess it's prob- that's probably you know, at least uh, somewhat important too. It usually doesn't get listed and by researchers as being way up there, but uh, could be an oversight on their part. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, as you've been chewing through all this research and thinking on this topic, you've definitely run into all the uh, reasons that, let's say, people that are pro-regulation and pro-city planning and so on and so forth, whatever labels used, you probably run into a lot of the arguments that they themselves mm-hmm. put forward. I mean, and of course, here, here's that classic sort of situation where I suppose, and I'm assuming you correct me wrong, many of these arguments are obviously presented in the name of helping the people that they claim to be re- oh, yeah. uh, regulating, of oh, course, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And not always totally wrong when you say, hey, when we go to put these parking regulations in place, it's going to help people who want to be able to park. Like, well, yeah, I suppose it will. Right. However, right. <laughs> at, what, at what freaking cost? If you're going and, and eliminating a few hundred dollars of inconvenience for existing residents, the cost of raising, raising new housing by $100,000 a unit, you got to say, well, gee, yes, there's something to be said for it, but very little compared to all the harm you're doing. And that's honestly a lot of what I think is going on with regulation is just what I call a numeracy where people say, well, we're doing this for the following benefits. It's like, yeah, well, if we put a price tag on those benefits, it's quite small. And on the other hand, there's these enormous costs that people barely consider, especially raising the price of housing for lots of other people. So you step back and say, all right, so yeah, you've got something going for you. But on the other hand, there's these enormous costs on the other side. And if you're doing any kind of regulation, at minimum, you should be doing a cost-benefit test on regulation and seeing when we're going and preventing people from building stuff on their own property, what's the net effect rather than what's the very visible effect on people that are already there and just how dramatic is it? I think a lot of the way that people judge regulation is not based upon doing numbers. It's based upon doing feelings and saying, well, I would really resent it if I had trouble parking. Well, Put a dollar value on that resentment. Where, what does it come out to then? Um, now, it's also worth pointing out that a lot of regulations all amplify a problem that they purport to solve, but they move the problem somewhere else. Mm. So if you say, hey, there's way too much traffic here. Let's go and make it hard to drive here so that we solve the traffic problem. Like, well, where do you think that traffic just went to? Probably went right. even further. There's even more traffic. It's just you put it in a different location. So that wasn't really a solution to a problem of traffic. It was a way of very selfishly saying the smallest inconvenience to us is going to count more than a much greater inconvenience to a lot of other people. So I think that is, uh, that is a lot of what else is going on. Right. And in general, so much of the problem is just not considering the, all of the harm that's being done. And I think there's kind of, you know, now I think a lot of the idea, honestly, is just sheer economic illiteracy of denying there's any connection between housing regulation and housing supply. So that is something where you really do see a lot of people are just so stubborn about it. And they say, oh, sure, sure. When you go and say you can't build more homes, then fewer homes get built. It's like, yeah, like the sarcasm is dripping. It's like, yeah, like what else could be the story? Like right. what else could happen? And I, I mean, I, I am kind of mystified when someone denies it, you know, you know like I, I am an economics teacher, so I guess I shouldn't be so surprised that economic illiteracy would be so rampant, 
this is one where I really think that it's just highly motivated reasoning. Most people, it was something that they liked. Uh, you know, so you know, so you know, there's something that they wanted to increase in supply, and then you said this would make it cheaper, then they, they wouldn't argue. It's only when they don't like the idea that they then start disputing the obvious facts of the matter. And so... Right. There also seems to be a lot of people, too, that when you zoom out, they aren't focused on one issue or another, for example, whether it be parking or or maybe they don't like the idea of a – in their minds, I mean, I'm not saying I agree, like a big ugly building or something going up too tall. I think when, when you zoom out as well, people are, are quite often under under the spell, especially municipal councillors and so on and so forth, that they're, they're actively trying to design the city, I think, as well, mm-hmm. like in terms of with these ideas in their head and theories of, well, if we put you know the schools here and restrict this and this type of residential development this way, it's going to be great. We're going to have this kind of flow of traffic. So, um, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure you've probably run into a lot of arguments, not just on the piece by piece issue, but also this from this argument from grand design, I think as well. Yeah. And especially aesthetic arguments where people Mm. say, well, I just think that doesn't look good. It's like, all right, well, first of all, probably a lot of people disagree or get used to it. But even if you're right and put a dollar value on that, how much would you actually pay to have that slight alteration in the skyline? compared to just letting people build another building, right? And it is one where people just don't want to go and talk about numbers because most people find numbers boring and aggravating and, and all other ways and just hope crashing. <laughs> you go and do the math and you're like, hey, my hope was just crashed. But still in terms of coming up with any kind of reasonable public policy, if you're not willing to talk about numbers, then really what have you got? It's just a war of conflicting feelings and impressions. So there's really not much to go on there. Now, I would also say that people are very inclined to think about the question, how can regulation solve problems rather than what's the best way to solve problems? Right, right. So when when they say, well, there's parking, well, how can we use regulation to solve parking? Well, is regulation the only way of solving parking problems? Uh, There's another one that economists have been pushing for a long time, which is how about prices? How about prices? How about charging people for parking instead of just saying you can, telling everyone what you can and can't do, absolutely. Right now, this is striking because over time, the technology for charging people for both parking and road pricing has become fantastic. So now with smartphones, it is super easy to make the price of parking and driving depend upon the exact conditions on the road or on the street, instant by instant. You really can just have something like a spot market where the price is always changing and you can then make it make it the case that the roads are always moving nicely. There's mm-hmm. always parking. It just means there's going to be flexibility in the pricing. But, and again, the, just the sheer resentment that people get when they start thinking about having to pay extra for parking or driving at a peak time, you know, never mind the point of, well, what good is it for it to be free if you can't do it? Right. Exactly. And again, then there's the economic literacy. Oh, I failed to, to see there's any connection at all between the price and the availability. It's like, what are you out of your mind? Of course, there's a connection between price and availability. In fact, there's so much resentment against paying for parking or for paying for roads that I think we actually have very high sensitivity. Just a very moderate toll can clear the roads out or clear the street out with fairly, fairly great ease, which is quite striking when you think about it, but it's precisely if people don't like paying for parking and driving, that a modest fee you can get traffic moving and get the parking available. Absolutely. And I actually want to, in a second, just shift gears into some of the uh, things you might say to somebody who uh, is fearful of the idea of like unleashing development, if you will. But but before we get to that, I want to touch on one more uh, thing that often people bring up as sort of um, one of the causes they can point to, or in some cases, honestly, just cast all the blame on as a reason that there's rising housing prices. So they often sidestep this question of supply and development all the time and talk about, look, and this was actually, I think, a hotter issue about a year ago, too. I haven't heard about it as much. Uh-huh. but it got huge uh, before and this was um, foreign investment there was uh-huh. a huge target on foreign investment and uh, w- what do you have to say to that someone says the problem isn't that we're not building enough the problem is that all these people from other countries are investing they're renting houses they're not living here uh, and, and that's driving the prices up wow I mean, the first thing I'm going to start of is saying you understand what you're saying what you're saying is that you have a fantastic export which is Canadian housing it's something you can build here and then sell to foreigners and make money. Normally, people are they get really excited about exports and talk about how great it is that we have exports and get angry at other countries for preventing them from exporting things. And here you've got an industry that's booming where you're selling this stuff to foreigners and they're desperate to pay. And somehow this one, because 
it moves the foreigner to the, to the item instead of the item to the foreigner. Mm-hmm. People get very agitated about it and consider it a bad thing. It's like, this really isn't different from making cars in Canada and selling them to China. It's just making houses and selling them to the to people in China who then will come and use them here. So it's more of you've taken something that's obviously a sign of success, namely that you have people around the world that want to buy, uh, buy the, the buildings that you're making, and then somehow in this warped Joker-like perspective, turn it into turn this good thing into a bad thing. So that's where I would start. Now, in terms of, you know, is it true that allowing foreigners to buy homes raises prices? Say, well, yeah, that's very likely. If you said that no one whose name started with a vowel could go and buy a home, then probably that would go and reduce prices. Especially if you also they also can't rent, so you just have to crowd in with a consonant person, right. uh, something like uh, something like that. But again, it is such a short-sighted view. It's like, well, gee, if we have something that people want this badly, why is it that we are trying so hard to ration it rather than to unleash it? Mm. You know, if you are making way more, if you're, if you're not making enough cars to go and satisfy demand, why don't you look into building more factories? Similarly, if you're making more houses than people, you're making, making, not making as many houses as people actually want to buy, then why not just say, well, let's unleash it and deregulate it so you can build a lot more? And so, I mean, I say this is a you know, standard case of people going and finding a foreigner to scapegoat for a problem that can be solved, you know, you know, solved much more reasonably in another way. You know, what they're saying is not literally false. It's not like if you just say, like, we're excluding a large number of people from buying and that will reduce the price of housing, at least relative to what it would be. I say that's true. But again, it's just a very strange mentality where you turn a positive thing that people want to buy something that you're making into a negative thing. Right. And not mm-hmm. considering, hey, well, this, is some, this isn't something to stop. It's something to capitalize on. It, uh, this is one of the things that Canada makes that the world wants. So why not let us give it to them right. and, I guess, and, make, I, money, and make money? Right. And I guess you can only sidestep the main point so much that ultimately, even if, you know, like, like you said, you can show, of course, all things being equal, you know, a bunch of uh, unleashing foreign investment into housing, it raises the prices. You, you, you end up uh, circling the point time and time again that ultimately it's, it's a supply issue, right? I mean, if, there, if, a, if there's a boom of supply yeah. after yeah. that because people want to sell yes. these foreigners, the price will then adjust. Yeah, immediately is very similar to Trump saying we're not going to be exporting vital resources to Canada during COVID. Right. It's like, and it's like, well, wait, I thought you liked exporting things. Now suddenly you wake up and say, no, no, that's a bad thing to export. Like, why is that a bad thing to export? Well, it hurts domestic consumers uh, if you're allowed to export it. Hey, that's always true, actually. Uh, right. <laughs> of course, if you if you generalize this policy and you prevent anyone from exporting anything, then you really are impoverishing your whole society because you know, in each of these cases, you're, you're you are basically making one group in your society better off at the expense of the others, and you are wasting a lot of resources and opportunities in the process. So that is not a path towards social progress. Although, yes, you know, there's there's no rule so destructive that it's not going to benefit somebody. You know, even if it's just down to the classic depression, let's go and have the government buy a bunch of food and then destroy it. Right. There's some people gain from that, but. When you step back, it's like, this is madness. Why, why are we destroying perfectly good food? Why not let people eat it, let the price come down? And if you don't like it, then you got to find another line of work. Right. And, and we're actually about to go to our break because I want to do it now before we get into a roll on, on the next chapter fuel. But but before we tie off the first half, because we, we've talked we've talked about it from a couple different angles, I just want to round off the point and say, but ultimately, no matter what, no matter what angle we approach it from, what what it always comes back to, from your view, of course, is that no matter how we talk about this housing price crisis, it's just about building more. That's a fair summary, I'm sure, right? We just yeah, need yeah, to build yeah. more. Yeah, very, very much. And again, this isn't just pure theory. There's a lot of research behind it. So one is just to look at what housing prices used to do in the area era before high regulation. Housing prices sometimes went up, notably. Sometimes housing prices would go up 20 or 30%, but they wouldn't stay there. Those housing prices would be a signal to the industry, wait a second, you can combine land and wood and labor and make and, and make and make a profit because prices are above the cost of production. And so in the early era, whenever prices would get above the cost of production, there'd be a rush to go and build more and prices would fall back down to the cost of production. That's the normal way for housing markets to work. But regulation has gotten so strict in the last 50 years that in a lot of places it just doesn't work that way anymore. And instead we just see prices stay way above the cost of the building materials plus the land. Um, so yeah, and then the other thing, but you know, so anyway, there's that. Then just realizing, you know, you know like, like people often just think it's just because the land's so scarce. 
It's like, just get into a helicopter or look at some aerial photography and you'll almost always see this is just totally false. San Francisco, they say it's a peninsula. We don't have enough land. Get into that helicopter and you will see, wow, there's skyscrapers on maybe 10% of this land tops. And the rest of the city is like two or three story buildings that are very hard to knock down or replace with a skyscraper. Right. Well, like obviously, if you could just buy those up and knock them down, it would be happening to a like it would be one of the greatest building booms in the history of the world if you could just go and say, hey, all right, look, sorry, we were wrong. Anyone can sell out to builders now and let's see what happens. And yeah, well, like you'll see the transformation of the city. Right. And again, it's one where people say, Oh, it's going to be so terrible. Like, will it be so terrible? Or is it just that you are a neurotic, pessimistic person who just assumes the worst when you don't know what's going to happen uh, in the book, which, uh, so I don't know if I mentioned that it is actually going to be a nonfiction graphic novel. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and like a lot of what I want to do in the book is just to get over the aesthetic complaints by showing people pictures of what things could be like. So anyway, there's a part where I travel back in time with Ed Glazer to look at the original Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Manhattan. It's a gorgeous 19th century building, which was knocked down in the 30s to build what? The Empire State Building. Right. You totally couldn't do that anymore. And again, at the time, you could easily see people lamenting, how, how could they destroy this terrible building to put up this monstrosity? And now New York City without the Empire State Building isn't New York City anymore. Where, what, what would King Kong climb? Right. I so, say so you like you really need to just accept maybe change could be an improvement, and and just to realize there is this deep set status quo bias of people to think things are fine the way they are, and just neglect the possibility that maybe things will be a lot better. And you like not only you get used to it, you'll say, "Wow, what was wrong with me that I didn't see this potential?" Right. Not to mention that if you really want to keep something, you can always build up and around it. I mean, if that, but I mean, hey, there's more regulations on that, blocking that too, right? <laughs> yep. All right. We're going to take a quick break. So, uh, everyone, you listen to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Brian Kaplan today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind about the podcast to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including John Robson, Daniel Beer, and Rosa Pairello. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Brian Kaplan today. So, Brian, I think the first half of our conversation was great. I think we set the stage for uh, for what your recommendation is to address the housing price uh, crisis, which is to just build, baby, build, as the uh, forthcoming book title will be. Um, now, there are many arguments against unleashing building and housing, even if some might even you know, stretch their own position a bit and say, okay, Brian, I understand what you're saying, but, so I want to talk a bit about those uh, buts and then your answer to them. So people will often cite things like congestion, pollution, noise, uh, an area becoming unlivable. I think the listener to the podcast right now can come up with many different arguments themselves, even that they might think someone might throw your way. Um, But you've outlined in the blog I mentioned before that there are ultimately four main categories, if you will, that you can sort answers to these objections into. So I kind of want to trace those now because, of course, we can't cover every single thing here, but I thought this would be a a really great way to tour some of these. So one thing you say is that, generally speaking, uh, people are overestimating externalities and costs. So could you explain that and maybe even give some examples? Right. So I think the main thing that I would say there is that people are very quick to think about negatives of building new stuff, but they are very slow to think of positives of building new stuff. Mm. Now, if you step back and say, hey, you know what? I've got a great way to avoid any negative aspect of development. Just live in a remote rural area and everything will be fine. This is where people say, no, I don't want to live in some remote rural area because I won't have restaurants. I won't have shopping. I won't have neighbors. There won't be kids for, for my kids to play with. It's like, huh. Interesting you should say that because those are positive things that go with really all developments. Anytime there's new development happening, this means that there are going to be new shopping opportunities, new social opportunities, new job opportunities. Right? There is a reason why people pay so much to live in the very in, 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 in the really expensive cities, which is, you know, yes, they are restricting supply, but uh, if it weren't desirable to be there, people would respond just by not living there rather than by paying high prices. If you were to heavily restrict the supply of housing in the 
rural areas of northern Canada. It would not lead to high prices in the, in the rural areas of northern Canada. It would just lead nobody to being there. So there, you know, there are a lot of desirable things about being in dense areas. And yet, when people think about development, they pretty much just ignore them and only focus on the negatives. So I say that at minimum, you've got to go and think about positives and negatives at the same time. And also correct for this very human tendency to get so much more worked up verbally about the negatives. I mean, the interesting thing is that when people are paying money, then they usually take positives and negatives into account. It's like, well, on the one hand, it's going to be a pain to live in New York City and there's going to be traffic. But on the other hand, there's all these great opportunities and I like the restaurants, the bars, and I can get a better job there. But when people are asked to express their opinions, that's where almost no one wants to talk about good stuff. And people only want to complain and say, oh, there's this horrible thing and that horrible thing. I mean, this is like if you just talk to a New Yorker about the city, like it's much easier to get them complaining than talking about the good stuff. And it's like, well, why are you here then? You hate it so much. Super expensive and you hate it. I don't get it. Why are you here? Right. That's one big part. Another part, as I was saying, is that the most of the negatives are actually very easy to deal with with pricing rather than by restricting development. Mm -hmm. People don't like this idea, but there's no doubt that it works. And again, this doesn't mean that you have to pay high prices at all times. The modern technology allows us to vary the price based upon real-time conditions. So if there happens to be traffic building on the road at rush hour, then you start raising the price to get people to not go at that time. If a area is getting parked up, then you raise the price. But on the other hand, if it's a weekend and nobody's parking there, then the meter can automatically go down to zero. And in which case, uh, suddenly there's free parking here. And then, and you know, like with older technologies, you could, couldn't be this flexible. But with modern for smartphone tech, it, it, we, it, we now are in the future. We can do this very easily. Uh, in terms of environmental effects, here there's been some really interesting research, most notably stuff done by uh, Ed Glazer and Matthew Kahn. And they've done some very careful carbon account, accounting for different parts of the U.S. and for different kinds of housing in the U.S., the punchline of the research is that housing regulation is greatly worsening the problem of carbon emissions mm. for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of the big reasons, I think probably you know, at least close to the biggest reason, is that the areas of the country that by virtue of climate, people have a very low carbon footprint, especially California, also for other reasons are very highly regulated. So they are actively repelling people into the higher carbon footprint areas of the country because, of course, people are going to live somewhere. So if you just say, hey, you can't live in California, you might make some carbon here. Well, fine, I'll go live someplace else where I make a lot more carbon. And the whole idea of global warming is that it's global. It doesn't matter whether the carbon is coming out of California specifically. It matters how much human beings make. The, the same paper also has some other inter- interesting results, one of them being that for almost all cities, emissions are lower in cities than in the suburbs. So basically, by regulating urban life more highly and raising those prices, you are getting people to move out to places where they are more polluting. Mm. Then probably the one that they didn't emphasize it that much in the write-up, but it's right there when you read it, is that new houses are much cleaner, are much less polluting you know, carbon-wise than older houses because they are so much better built. Uh, even though new houses are bigger, so even adjusting to the fact that new houses are bigger, new houses actually have a lot less pollution. Uh, that they are that, that that they are associated with. So basically, if you really wanted to get the carbon footprint of major cities down, just let them knock down all those old houses and put modern buildings there, and that will lead to a large reduction in carbon emissions. Right. A lot of the people obsessed with their old uh, home aesthetics and keeping a neighborhood mm-hmm. a certain way, uh, those tend to also yeah. often be the people that are very yeah. uh, socially and glo- uh, environmentally conscious. I guess they should also think about that, for example, right. that one old house they really like the look of, if they put a different lens on, what they probably see is a bunch of heat escaping because the windows aren't sealed properly and there's a huge heating unit that hasn't been replaced or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So that's a really good point too, is that a lot of these older homes are just necessarily built on old their builder standards and technology and so on and so forth. So they're consuming yeah. more electricity, aren't as insulated even properly. I, you know, I, I didn't think of that one, but that's also a really interesting point. It is old tech ultimately, although it's a house. Yeah, yeah that's, that's quite right. I mean, again, I'd say, you know, so much of the problem is that people approach these issues emotionally and rather, rather than numerically. So when someone says, well, this is a beautiful house and it's also really important to go and drive a clean car, they say, well, 
maybe if you went and let them go and knock down the building and build something else, then that would say that would be way better for the environment than just this little thing you're doing with your car. And that's where people are likely to get agitated rather than say, "Hmm, maybe Mm -hmm. let's look at the numbers. You know, if I, in a way, if I could just get people to just calm down and do more math, I would feel like this book would have accomplished a lot of its purpose. I mean, like, like there's one one page in the book where I actually just say, all right, so quick math question. One trillion dollars minus one billion dollars is approximately equal to, right, not exactly, approximately equal to, oh yeah, a trillion. Yeah, a trillion minus a billion is approximately a right. trillion. Right? And yet when people debate so often, you can put forward some trillion dollar gains of deregulation and then people come up with a bunch of billion dollar problems. And say, look, even if you're totally right, we should still just do what I say because your problems, though gripping, are small, and my problem or my and my gain, though the though boring, is huge. We shouldn't be deciding what to do based upon which problems hold our attention. It should be based upon the actual size of the problem. Right. I like that or, as a, or, be, or benefits. Right. I, I, I like that as a potential book title. Uh, calm down and do more math. So maybe maybe yeah. someone could take that and run with it. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna uh, fly off the shelves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Um, but uh, actually, I guess another one I want to bring up too is like as you were talking there, I sort of realized because you talked about people that they often get very excited when they talk about these things and honestly just list the negative. Some people I find at least, and you tell me if your experience has been the same, also go off and and make sort of very isolated claims as if the rest of the world doesn't exist and it's just housing and developers. And what I mean by that is the following. When people talk about, okay, we're going to unleash development. Uh, this is going to happen. The heights are going to get out of control. People are, then I've heard some people go so far as to say things like people are going to build into each other's property. There's going to be damage. It'll be chaos. But that to me is sort of making it sound like this idea of development is completely isolated from things like tort law or all the other stuff that actually yeah. still exists. Right. So I find that's another interesting thing too, is people uh, act that un- act like unleashing development somehow what you mean by that is negating every other single way we live our lives as far as like, a, for example, tort law again, but, but all this stuff could also be taken care of in different frameworks. You don't need a city planner, I guess, is my point, literally sitting there and planning it. There's a lot of other mechanisms too. If there is a negative effect or someone's been wronged, there, there's other ways to, to fix that. Tolls, one of them, you can negate effects. Tort law is another, you can take up someone against damages, but you don't need this sort of planning. I'm not, I'm not sure if you've run into the same thing that people act as if there's no yeah. other frameworks around the discussion beyond the, the development regulation. Right. A lot of the problems I see really the only word for it is paranoia where people mm-hmm. start by imagining the worst thing that could possibly happen and then quickly talk themselves to a frenzy where the thing they've imagined will in fact happen. It, I mean, obviously, if you did deregulate a large area and you unleash the media to find the very worst thing that happened to anyone in an entire country of tens of millions of people, no doubt they will come up with a bunch of horror stories. But the real reason, well, yeah, it's a big place. So in a big place, bad things are going to happen a few times. It doesn't mean that it's an important problem or that we should be deeply worried about it. It's just one we say, yeah, well, you know, some, someone winds up having... There, you know, someone's built something a few feet onto their property, and we can go and have a story about it. All right, well, I mean, like, it's like there's there's a way of dealing with it. But like, you know, even if that really happened, and nothing, and there were no remedy, still compared to all the harm that's currently being done by not building, mm-hmm. it really is quite minor. Um, I mean, this is a case where, again, I would encourage people just to go and look at things historically and say, well, gee, like back when you were allowed to build buildings as tall as you wanted, was it common to go and build something on somebody else's property? No, it was true that people would build tall buildings and block out people's lights sometimes. And it's like, well, yeah, like build tall buildings are going to block out lights. Maybe like we're now in a society where people think that you should be totally protected against that rather than maybe that's just tough luck. And you got to live with people with the shadows. I'm like, like, what do you think? How, how do you think the buildings that are already built? What, what do you think they do? Right. They block lights. Right. So like, like if we had these standards, they could never have been built. And was it a bad idea to build those buildings? So what is the issue really? So there's that. Let's see. And then, oh yeah, yeah, sort of the other way of thinking about it is that right now we are so regulated that if you just started deregulating, there like the opportunity to take advantage of the newly legalized things is so vast. The 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 the, uh, the reason to go and then try to break some remaining law in the process is quite trivial. Right. So it's like, hey, wait, I'm fi- I'm finally allowed to build something as tall as I want on my own land. 
yeah, well, I'm going to avoid getting into trouble by building stuff on somebody else's land, (laughs) given that I now have all these great legal opportunities that I can exercise. I'm not going to worry about yeah, and like on the like while I'm on the side, while I'm doing this, again, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a very strange reaction when someone opens up some new opportunities to say, "Hey, instead of taking advantage of those opportunities, I'm going to go and do something villainous on the side." Right. Not that, not that in a big country it wouldn't happen, honestly, because you know any big country, bad stuff happens every day. Mm-hmm. You know, there's about a thousand murders on Earth every single day. Well, honestly, whenever I see murders in the news, like, well, why are those the murders that are on the news? There's like a thousand every day. Why do we single out those as the ones that everyone on earth needs to feel bad about instead of just saying, hey, it's another average day, another thousand people are murdered. Human, you know, human beings are not, uh, have some problems, but like why single out the ones that are on the news? Like it's obviously a lot, a lot of it, you know, highly emotional. Like these are the ones that are going to really upset people. And we want to make people be in a constant state of misery. So we're going to find the murders that bother them the most and tell them about them. Mm-hmm. Like, hmm. Same thing with, same thing with certain kidnappings, right? I mean, that's always well, very yeah, specific. Kidnappings, you know, of course. Yeah. Maybe, we're not going to have a story on all the kids who didn't get kidnapped. That, that's true. Exactly. Yeah. And, and on the other hand, though, I, I want to ask you as well. What do you feel is at least the, the the strongest objection you've ever heard against laissez-faire development? I don't mean that that you would believe it or buy it. I more mean to say that is there any sort of uh, objection or um, or argument against laissez-faire development that you've heard that you think pro-development folks should be a little less flippant about that you you actually would say you know what no no you should stop and really think about this argument because you should have a good answer to it. Hmm. I mean, I think the uh, the easiest answer is just to say that it needs to be 100% laissez-faire rather than you know, 50% deregulation. Of course, in the real world, you always wind up being lucky if you can get 5% deregulation. Um, so, you know, so I guess I would say that the idea that there might be, you know, you know, basically that, that the, the gains of getting 90% deregulation might be greater than the gains of getting 100% deregulation because sort of the last few regulations on the books might really be solving serious problems. I'd say that's probably the most reasonable one overall to saying, well, look, like, we don't need to get rid of a hundred. We need to get rid of like, like let's just settle for 90 and then mm-hmm. particularly settle for 90 as our end point, And let's not go that far on uh, the book. I actually do argue quite strongly for the full 100. Right. Um, so I guess I have a, I have a sense of discussion of the slippery slope argument, which on one hand, many it's unpopular, but I maintain actually not only is it better than most people realize, but it's particularly well illustrated in housing. When you look at how housing regulation got started, the first things that they're regulating, it seems like, what's the big deal? Just have allow them to have a few regulations. Life will be a lot better. Just say you can't go and have a pig farm next to a preschool. Like, well, why can't we just do that? And sure, you can say that it won't happen often. What's the big deal if we go and have this rule? And then the slippery slope argument kicks in. It's like, well, once we allow that, then we allow another regulation that's less reasonable. Then we allow another regulation that's less reasonable. And on and on and on until we finally have doubled the price of housing, and we really have. Right. And this is one where, in the United States at least, there was uh, there, there were there were some key Supreme Court cases where the Supreme Court actually could have crushed zoning in the infancy. Supreme Court, uh, you know, so you know, like a couple of famous cases where they could have just said, "Look, we're not going to extend the law of nuisances to aesthetic harm. Right. Law of nuisance is about physical trespass. It's not about you to see someone's building that you don't like." or that someone is lowering the value of your business by having an undesirable business nearby. It was totally open to the Supreme Court to do that early on. And instead they said, ah, it's kind of nuisance-like and let's just leave it up to local governments. They're not going to get that far wrong. And guess what? They got really damn far wrong. Right. Right. And another thing that I found very interesting too, actually, that you, you made a note about in the blog was that you say this isn't a, uh, this isn't a partisan and liberal conservative issue, nor is it a libertarian issue per se. Like you're actually trying to position this whole discussion in, in a way that says that everyone could or or at least should get mm-hmm. to the conclusion that housing needs to be deregulated. and We need more of it from like any any of their unique viewpoints. Like I, so basically, you're you're claiming that tackle this any way you'd like from any angle, uh, you should end up at the point where basically, hey, we need more building. Like it's, it really oh, yeah. is that simple. That's right. Obviously, there are a lot of ideological barriers to people accepting that, but I'm always thinking here about the most reasonable, sincere people on each side and thinking about talking to them and trying to win them over. So yeah, so I think that it's very easy for left-wing people to say, wait a second. I mean, when you make the cost of housing extra high, 
Uh, first of all, uh, the poor spend a larger share of their income on housing, so it's especially bad for the poor. Second of all, renters are poorer than homeowners, so also especially bad for the poor. If you look further, you'll see that a major cause of rising inequality and falling social mobility is also high cost of housing. So I'd say that it would be to- it would be totally sensible, might be almost unthinkable for a reasonable left wing person to be opposed to this. It's really one where they would just say, "Yeah, well, look." Like, how is it that we propose to get cheap housing to people? We got to build a lot more housing, obviously. And then on the other hand, very easy for conservatives to go and and hear that about the benefits of deregulation. And so you know they've they've already got that. At the same time, obviously, there are a lot of conservatives who, on some level, are thinking, "Well, but we got to protect the suburbs from being turned into urban areas." Like, well. First of all, one of the best ways to protect the suburbs from being turned into urban areas is to deregulate urban areas. Right. Right. And secondly, the, one of the best ways to let people enjoy the suburbs is to make the suburbs affordable. Otherwise, you are forcing people out to very remote locations and, or making people to settle for a much reduced quality of life. Um, so you have that. And then in the book, I also just go over from a list of a lot of different philosophical viewpoints. And you know, like utilitarians obviously should like this, egalitarians should like this. Um, there is quite a bit of research saying that one of the main reasons, or perhaps even the sole reason why inequalities increased since World War II is rising housing costs. And if that if you just held that at the original level, that in fact inequality would not have increased. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And, and let's say much of what we talked about today, we snap our fingers, it's magically implemented, people see it your way, and then, you know, we end up with a, mo- maybe not completely, but a more or less safer environment for development and housing. Uh, if I were to present that sort of scenario to somebody, people might say, yeah, but, but but Brian, we still need to regulate housing to some degree or have the government look into it because of, you know, for instance, helping certain people afford that maybe still even can't afford those prices and so on and so forth. Um, so So I guess the question ultimately is, what policies, if anything, I'm not saying you'd be a proponent of it, but if someone says, well, the government still has a role here in housing, um, what should the state, state stick to? Like me personally, I'm, I'm for like more like, you know, if you want to subsidize someone, subsidize the renter, don't subsidize a housing project kind of thing. Is that the kind of way you'd guide the conversation yeah. for someone saying the government still needs to do something to help people and, and be involved in housing, quote unquote? I would say that actually the most obvious ones are the contagious externalities like fire. Mm. The point of a fire code is not primarily to prevent your house from burning down. It's to prevent other people house, uh, your house from burning other people's houses down. So right. that kind of thing would be again, one of the more reasonable things. Even there, I'm, like, I'm skeptical, and you know, especially with modern construction techniques. I just don't think people are going to be building fire-prone buildings. Right. If you're doing skyscrapers, again, it's not just an issue if your skyscraper collapses and kills everyone inside. What if it falls over onto another person's skyscraper and kills them? Again, this is one where... I would say that at least at the top of the list of the least unreasonable things for government to do, like, well, can we just double check that your skyscraper isn't going to fall into somebody else's skyscraper <laughs> like in a Godzilla movie? Right. I don't think it would be that hard to double check that kind of thing. At the same time, like I said, that slippery slope argument is what makes me super hardcore and say, eh, let's just not do it. Let government do lift a single finger because as soon as they do, you are unleashing this horrible process of just piling one regulation onto another until right. finally we are at the world we're, on, we're in where like, honestly, the situation we're in is an outrage. It is terrible to think about doubling the cost of one of the most basic things that people are all, would already be spending a lot of money on and then double mm-hmm. that cost. Mm-hmm. This is way worse than doubling the cost of gasoline or chewing gum. Right. You know, like those things are right. Well, they're like they're like chewing mm-hmm. gums, an important thing, mm-hmm. but still, or, or even certain yeah, foods yeah. that would be listed as necessities. Yeah. There's often substitutes. Yeah. yeah. Right. So there's that. Yeah. In terms of, you know, the helping people thing, you know, that's where I would say that the general model of, you know, like, if you're going to help people, just give them, give them cash rather than tell them, rather than even give, even give them a, an item specific voucher. Mm-hmm. Housing is one case where that's reasonable, but yeah, if it is, no, no, we have to help them get housing specifically. Then again, give them a voucher that they can spend anywhere rather than saying, we're going to have government built housing in these exact locations to built to these standards with all of the known problems of public housing. So, yeah. 
Right. So in other words, if you were to allow something, if we were if we were able to just say, okay, here, here's what it is, but but someone said, Brian, you can have what you want, but you'd have to allow the government to do something. You're, you're basically yeah. saying that's wrapped into some minimum safety standards. And if yeah. there is a role for the right. state to help people's welfare, yeah. it's empowering the individual. Like it's, it's ultimately still get out of controlling how housing is built is ultimately the theme. Yeah. And again, I especially would, st- would focus on the contagious negative externalities like fire or a building falling on another person's building. Uh, which again, I think is fairly fanciful, but uh, you know, like obviously, if you built it really poorly, right, <laughs> it could fall. Um, you know, or like you know, so like earthquake code again. That's not just to go and stop your own building from falling or from killing even your own occupants. It's also prevent the building from falling onto other people. So it is uh, you know, like one of the less unreasonable and least paternalistic kinds of regulation. So I would guess, like you know, that's where I would start. You know, if I was if I was bending the principle, I'd start bending it there. Got it. You know, contagious negative externalities in the broad sense, not of course of buildings get you know, get viruses, but right, they they can burn, they can fall. Right, understood. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And as our time winds down here, I want to get a couple of sort of wrap up questions, and I also want to talk about. Uh, you have a couple words on on your new book that's actually out, but before we get to that, huh? I actually wanted to. Uh, just actually more of sort of like a, a personal preference question because I'm just very interested. So as you, you did mention earlier that your your new book is going to be a nonfiction graphic novel, um, just like the other one you worked on called o- Open Borders. Um, why do you like that format? Why do you think it's effective? You touched on it before, but we didn't get mm-hmm. deep into it. I'm just I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this. I guess I would say that I fell in love with it by example. So I just saw the best nonfiction graphic novels like Larry Gonick's Cartoon History of the Universe. And I said, wow, this is such a fantastic book. It's such a great way of conveying a lot of information in a short amount of time and also conveying it in a more memorable way and a more entertaining way. Um, as an educator and as someone who's written on the economics of education and as someone who's read in educational psychology, I'm very aware of just how hard it is to communicate anything with anyone. That's hard. And also very hard to get people to retain information. Mm-hmm. And so you put this all together. It's like, hey, if we can do something that is first of all, conveys more information per minute. Second of all, is more entertaining, so it captures more minutes. And third of all, has better retention because you're just presenting it in a more memorable way by combining words and pictures. And we're really multiplying what we're able to accomplish educationally by three terms. And that you know, three terms all greater than one, let's put it that way. And thereby just have a, have a much bigger impact. So like, like in both cases, well, like what I became aware of through blogging is there's all this great research out there that hardly anyone is ever going to read. Mm. It's just, first of all, even the best pieces would be dull for most people. And second of all, there's a lot of relevant research where it's not even obvious that it's relevant until you package it properly. Right, right. So, you know, so something on you know, new houses emit less carbon than old houses, you can read that and not in any way connect that to deregulation. Mm-hmm. Fact, probably most people would. It's like, oh, okay, so new houses are less carbon than old houses. <sighs> Snooze. Yeah, right. But when, but when you're saying, let's go and think about environmental objections to deregulation and then say, this means that actually the, those arguments are exactly wrong. The best way to go and get clean buildings is to allow deregulation because when you deregulate, guess what people build? New buildings. You don't mm-hmm. build old buildings when you deregulate. The old buildings already exist. You build new buildings when you deregulate. That is a lot of what I have in my mind is just trying to take this research and put it in a context where something that seems boring becomes fascinating because it's a building block in a bigger argument. Right. Yeah, I know. I, I really yeah. like that. Makes a lot of sense because I think I've seen you talk say something similar in, in different areas. And and one of the blogs I do remember of yours reading, you, you talked about you, you know, you seem very passionate about this idea, like you said, of actually getting communicating with people rather than just doing this mm-hmm. one piece of research over there. And and, and, and broadening the audience. So like right. my open borders, a lot of kids have read it. Kids as young mm. as five read the book. Right. That doesn't mean they understood everything that I said, but just to see, they turned all the pages, they got the gist of it. Maybe they'll come back when they're older. I realized, you know, I have broadened my audience so much compared to what I would normally have with an academic book. When I do academic books, I never write a book just for specialists. I always write a book that specialists will appreciate and say is an important contribution to the field. But I also want everyone in the field, non-specialists to read it. I want people in related fields to read it. But also I want journalists to read it. I want podcasters to read it. I want it to be assigned for undergraduates. So I always write the book such that at least a motivated undergraduate can understand it. For my regular books, that's as far as I've been able to go with expanding the audience is sort of everyone from the good undergraduate up to the professional research specialist. 
with these nonfiction graphic novels, I really have expanded it all the way down to precocious five-year-olds mm-hmm. up to people that would never read an academic book, but nevertheless, they see a book that explains academic research, but in an entertaining way. And I just get you know, it's just a much bigger audience. You know, there's a reason why my nonfiction graphic novel is my only New York Times bestseller. Right. It really was. That's a good point. Um, so I am. I hope I'm going to do this. And again, the uh, the long run goal is actually for Build Baby Build to be the first in a whole library of nonfiction graphic novels on social science, philosophy, and so on. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting project. I did see I mentioned your blog. I'm going to be very interested to keep an eye on that and what else comes out beyond this one. Um, well, as, yeah. as our time winds down here, just on another thing. Uh, so you do have a, a book that's currently out right now. I think it's Labor Econ versus the World. So why, why don't you tell us a bit about it? Maybe offer a little bit of a teaser as our chat winds down here. Right. It's called Labor Econ versus the World, Essays in the World's Greatest Market. What I realized last year is that I met some friends who have self-published books through Amazon and done very well with them. And I wanted to try my hand with it. And I said, what should I do? And I said, how about I go to the 17 years of blogging I've done for EconLog, or the blog EconLog I blogged from 2005 to 2022. I have the copyrights to everything except for the very most recent pieces. And what if I were to go and pick out the very best of those articles and then organize them by theme, hire some artists, as I'm meeting a lot of artists for doing this graphic novel work, uh, get uh, you know, undergraduate or graduate collaborator to go and do the legwork and to see what I can do with it. So anyway, so this is actually the first of eight planned volumes. I've got the tables of contents done for all of them. I've got covers done for five. Anyway, so this is the one on labor economics. It's got four parts. One part goes over the basics of, basics of labor economics, especially just understanding the nature of unemployment, saying, well, look, what is unemployment? It's a surplus of labor. And what does it mean for there to be a surplus? It means that you're not selling all that you all, all that you would like to sell at the market wage. At the market wage, more pe- people want to sell more hours than people want to buy. Right? And then once you put it that way, this is obvious solution. Well, how can we solve that? Well, wages come down, then we can get rid of unemployment. This is textbook labor economics. It's one that's pretty hard to argue with, and yet it's so distasteful to so many people that it hardly ever comes up when people discuss unemployment or related issues. Um, also, in this piece, I talk about the argument, well, even if regulation does cause unemployment, it's better for happiness that people are guaranteed higher wages and, and benefits and so on. This is where I say, well, we go over and look at what psychologists say about human happiness. You know what they say? They say that unemployment per se causes immense misery, even if you make up all the income loss because people get so much of their sense of identity and community from having a job. Hmm. So actually, I say that less regulated company, countries, it's not just economically more efficient, it's better for human happiness. So that's one large section of the book. Then I have a section on immigration where I go through a lot of my more specific arguments on the case for open borders and free migration. Probably my favorite piece there is I have one where I point out that while people are very skeptical about the ability of market forces to prevent discrimination, almost everyone wants to make sure there's a law saying that it's illegal to hire an illegal immigrant. Right. And when you think about, hmm, well, given how much resentment there is against illegal immigrants, if discrimination actually was effective in markets, you think that illegal immigrants would just not be able to get jobs. <laughs> right. And you wouldn't need the law. Right. But actually, almost everyone sits there thinking, now, if you can make money hiring an illegal immigrant, then these greedy jerks will go and hire them. And then while neglecting the, uh, the, the neglecting native workers or people who have their papers, it's like, yeah, well, that seems like a reasonable prediction, but then it does mean that you need to rethink everything you believe about discrimination. Because if you think that the mere existence of a profit opportunity is enough to get employers to go and set aside their personal feelings, well, then why are you so worried about discrimination? You know, it goes back to this old argument, like if women really paid 70 cents of the dollar, why doesn't every business just fire all the men, replace them with equally qualified women, and then capture the difference? It's like, yeah, that's a really good question. Right. So that's uh, then I have a section on education called Education Without Romance, where I elaborate on a lot of the arguments that I made in my book, The Case Against Education, mm-hmm. saying that so much of the payoff from education is not actually from the learning useful job skills, rather it's from getting a stamp on your forehead, which is very functional for an individual, but not so functional for society. If everyone has lots of stamps in the forehead, this doesn't mean everyone can get a great job. It means that you need lots of stamps to be, cons- to be even in the running and not have your application thrown away. 
And then the last part, in some ways, I think it's the most interesting for a broader audience. It's called the search for success. Here, I just go through a lot of research on what it takes to do well in life, uh, what, what it takes to do well in your career, what it takes to do well in your personal life, and the connection between the two. Uh, for example, there is a lot of evidence that for men in particular, marriage leads to a large increase in earnings. Right now, this could be a spurious correlation, but almost all of the obvious explanations uh, for why it isn't real fail. So it seems plausible that it's actually mostly genuine. And if you're wondering, like, why would that be? Well, uh, there's a lot, we have a lot of stories about how marriage gets men to uh, get on track in life and try to and try uh, gets them to become more ambitious. And there's some pressure on them at home to succeed and some guidance about things that you should and should not be doing. And then that leads to a large increase in earnings. So actually, what I say is that it seems like for men, marriage uh, it does about as much for your earnings as a four-year college degree. And yet there is endless social propaganda in favor of going to college and almost no propaganda <laughs> at, the, at the social level now in favor of marriage. Right. Right. And, and by the way, uh, like now for women, it seems to be the opposite. It seems like for women, marriage leads to somewhat lower earnings, adjusting for a lot of other factors. Uh, it's you know the women's loss is much smaller than men's gain, so the couple still greatly gains from marriage. Again, if you're if you're thinking about that, this cuts strongly against the idea that the married people are just more organized, disciplined people that would have made more money anyway. Because if that's true, why is it the men that get the big gain and women actually get a modest loss? Rather, it seems to be more plausibly about the couple interaction, the dyad, if you will, mm. such mm. that when there's a marriage, then the wife is doing a bunch of things to get the man to become more successful. And the husband, on the other hand, is uh, basically the, you know, the wife is in the process going and, give, and, give, and giving up a little bit of her opportunities in order to go and make the family much more prosperous. Uh, so that's so you've got that. I talk also quite a bit about the research on the so-called success sequence, uh, which is really a great recipe for avoiding poverty. It's not a recipe for becoming a, a billionaire or anything. But it just says, look, you don't want to be poor, don't want to actually be poor, then follow this follow the simple prescription. So step one, finish high school. Step two, work full time. Step three, get married before you have kids. Right. Those three things. And in the US, you have about a two percent chance of being below below the poverty line, 98% chance of not doing it. Right. And what I and uh, so now I I've not done this research on popularizing it, but I also have a piece where I say, what does the research really mean? Even the people that are doing the research often say, well, don't misinterpret this as saying that you can just pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And my response is, no, we should interpret it that way. It is actually is a recipe for self-help, right? And in particular, I say, look, if there was a paper saying, here's all you have to do to avoid poverty, uh, become first in your class at MIT, cure cancer, and uh, win America's Next Top Model, <laughs> if that was your prescription, and then you went around saying, hey, just don't want to be poor. Do these three simple things. People can reasonably say, like, each of those three things is pretty much impossible for almost everybody. Right. So what stupid advice? Right. On the other hand, you say finish high school, work full time, get married before you have kids. These are not things that require a lot of intelligence. They don't require even a lot of planning. It's just very basic stuff. It doesn't require that you have detailed knowledge of the world. It just requires that you really listen to what every parent, teacher, authority figure in your life has said pretty much. Um, so yeah, this is useful information. And I say, it's useful to know that this works and it's very useful to tell other people that it works. Why would you want to not, why would you want to keep this under wraps? Um, and, and again, people say, well, then people might judge someone that, did, that didn't do it and then fail. Like, well, maybe you should judge people who don't do it and then fail. Why not? Like what should you judge? Like like what should you judge people for if not for failing of uh, for failing to follow through some very basic things? Uh, so anyway, that's the last part of the book, which I think in many ways is, is most interesting because for a lot of people it's actionable actually, and I think it does furthermore just give you some a, a different perspective on life. So I I always like to to do that and, and say like this is this is just some research, but this is what it means for you. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate that overview. Thank you so much. All those yep. listening. And by the way, the book the book is only twelve bucks or nine nine ninety nine for the ebook, and I I'm uh, overall very very happy that it turned out. I've got a great Argentinian cover artist who's doing all my covers. She's great. So the covers are just the way I wanted to be. They're they're funny, but they capture the point of the book. 
Um, and then my, you know, the, the editor of the first book, uh, University of Chicago student Jack Pfefferkorn did a great job typesetting the whole book. It looks great. So I uh, hope, hope you check it out. If this stuff sounds interesting, only 12 bucks on Amazon. Amazon. Okay, got it. That's what I was going to ask. So everybody go check it out on Amazon. That's Labor Econ versus the World. Or, of course, just search Brian Kaplan. So, so Brian, uh, we are out of time here. I'm going to move us to our formal wrap-up. We've talked about a lot, uh, especially uh, given how, how the topic coming up. And then, as I said, people should keep an eye out for your upcoming book, uh, the, the graphic novel, Build Baby Build. Um, but if we were to put a finer point on our exploration of the question today, and I think I might know what flavor this is going to be, but let me ask you the official last question. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how we fix the housing crisis? In other words, if you wanted to leave someone with one or two or just a few things, if anything, and everything we've discussed, what would those be? Build, baby, build. Government is the problem and deregulation is the solution. Can't go wrong with that. We'll leave it there. Brian Kaplan, thank you so much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you. Been a great pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segang. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.